Hi, it's Holly here, and together we are at the second location. I will be continuing on with our analysis of the Tommy Ziegler case, but I'm here today with a different case, and it's kind of a breaking news situation. Because today, unless something changes and a stay is ordered or their governor of Missouri grants clemency, Amber McLaughlin will be the first transgender person executed in the United States. And while her crime is horrible and she deserves punishment, does anyone deserve death? especially when they had a life so horrible that imprisonment is better than the life they had on the outside. Like many imprisoned people, Amber's story begins with a childhood filled to the brim with neglect and abuse. And I don't want to hear, well, so-and-so had a tough life and they grew up to be a terrific person, because I know it happens. And I'm impressed by anyone who can overcome childhood traumas to lead a happy and productive life. But not everyone can do that, especially not when they have an intellectual disability like Amber. It's hard to rise above when you can just barely figure out how to just keep on going. But before we talk about Amber's life, let's talk about her crime. Amber's crime occurred before her transition, and I will use her current name, Amber, throughout this episode, but I will tell you that at the time of her crime, she was known as Scott McLaughlin. And this is important to note because the person that she raped and murdered knew her as Scott. And also because all court documents before her transition in 2018 used the name Scott McLaughlin. So if you want to read about the case and you want to do a little research and read actual court rulings, you will need to search under that name. But from, but from here on, she'll be referred to as Amber because I'm going to show her the respect that I would show any transgendered person and use their name of choice. To do otherwise, because I don't like who she is, and I don't. She raped and murdered a woman. There's not much to like there. But to pur purposefully use her dead name as a way to show disrespect would be, in my opinion, like using a racial slur against a minority murderer. It's not something I would do. It shows that deep down you are not okay with that person's race, gender, identity, or choice of sexual partners, whatever it is, because you are okay with putting those people down by using slurs when you don't like them. I don't like to use slurs. I think using a dead name is something that's similar to that. So I'm not going to do that. I wouldn't do that to a person I like. I wouldn't do it to a person that I don't like. So to me, it's just a, a, a respect of the, a respect of uh, the people, not so much the person, but a respect to the issue. Like I don't have a problem with transgendered people. So when a transgender person does something wrong, I'm not going to throw it in their face that they're transgendered. I don't, I'm not racist. So when a minority commits a crime, I don't use racist terms against them because it doesn't have to do with their race, the reason I don't like them. It has to do with what they did and who they are. Not, you know, what color they are, who they want to sleep with, what gender they, they are. It's, it's a non-issue for me. Now, to Amber's crime. Amber raped and murdered her ex-girlfriend, 45-year-old, 45-year-old Beverly Gunther in 2003. The pair had been in a relationship that was rocky, to say the least, with numerous breakups and reconciliations over the last year before the murder. And in all honesty, they had only known each other for about a year. They met in 2002. Beverly was murdered in 2003. And the pair had lived together for a while, but they had separated and were living apart. And they had their final breakup in September. And Beverly meant business this time. She was not going to reconcile with her boyfriend again. And I really wish that I could find out more about Beverly. I did find a picture of her online. And I will say that that lady had great gams. It's a, like a, she wore a little red blazer. She just a really cute picture. It just really speaks to me of, you know, 
2000, you know, Y2K times. And I, so I saw the terrific picture of her and I read a document that she wrote. She had just beautiful handwriting, but it was like the saddest thing to read because she's outlining experiences that she's had with Amber and how she's just so afraid and how their interactions have frightened her. It's, it's very chilling to see things like that when you know what the end's going to be. And I just think it's so sad that oftentimes the victims get lost because so much of the focus of a crime is on the criminal. But I do know that Beverly was loved by her family and that she is missed. Family members gave moving victim impact statements about Beverly in Amber's trial, and it was very powerful. So, like I said, Amber and Beverly had a volatile relationship. A neighbor noted that the couple had gotten into arguments and that Amber had a temper, once throwing over a table over a dispute related to a game of cards. And Amber had thrown a radio at Beverly. And one time the neighbor saw a man intervene and protect Beverly from a physical attack by Amber. And after that last breakup in September, this neighbor saw Amber parked outside waiting and watching for Beverly to get home. You know, stalking. A different neighbor saw Amber break into Beverly's home. Well, Amber was, she was caught by police. She claimed she was only getting back stuff that was hers, that she had left the stuff when she moved out and was just getting her belongings back. But Amber listed out the items that were hers and the officer looks in the car and notes items that Amber hadn't listed as hers among the items that she had taken. And she was arrested. But Beverly wasn't just being stalked and harassed at home. Amber f called her work frequently and would stop by Beverly's office. Amber would actually hide in the office, lying in wait for Beverly. And sometimes Amber would wait till Beverly's co-workers had left to look for Beverly in her office while she was alone, when Beverly would have no one there to help her. Eventually, Beverly's boss told Amber she could no longer come to the office. Amber, at this time, Amber left briefly, then returned in tears with a bloody hand. After receiving some first aid, Amber left, but she wouldn't say what had happened to her hand. Amber was out of control and told one of Beverly's neighbors that if she couldn't have Beverly, then nobody would. Oh, that old chestnut that's just the precursor to murder. That's not love, people. Beverly was scared, and she, she knew something was wrong. And she needed help, and she knew it, and she sought it out. She got an order of protection against Amber. A hearing was set for November 21st, 2003. But Amber would murder Beverly the day before the hearing on November 20th. The police had been escorting Beverly to her truck when she got off work, or the police would park across the street and watch Beverly walk to her truck. On November, on November 20th, Beverly was all alone in the office after 4 p.m. Her co-workers had all left for the day. The door was locked. But Beverly wasn't safe. There wasn't a police, police officer waiting to walk her to her truck that night. And because it was November, it was already dark outside when Beverly left her job at CompuCard and headed to the parking lot at 6 o'clock. There was no one there to help Beverly while Amber hid behind the steps, kneeling down with a knife in her back pocket, patiently waiting for Beverly to leave her office building. Amber saw Beverly and called out her name. Beverly said that she didn't want to talk. Okay, so this next part is from the court record, but here it is. It's a quote. For some reason, she pulled out the knife and stabbed Beverly. For some reason. Okay, that really doesn't explain anything. That might as well just say nothing at that point. That just didn't clear shit up. But for some reason, 
she stabs Beverly. But Beverly fights back. And when the police eventually arrest Amber, they noted scratches all over her arms and face that Amber would explain came from Beverly. When Beverly finally collapsed to the ground after being stabbed multiple times, Amber drug her to her car. Amber thought that Beverly was dead when she loaded her into the trunk of the car. Earlier in the day, between sometime between 4 and 5 p.m., this would be time while Beverly's still working, Amber went to her brother's apartment and told her brother's roommate that I'm fucking killing that bitch and that she didn't want to be locked up because of her, obviously alluding to Beverly. Amber left the apartment after about 15 minutes and returned around 7.30. This was after she had murdered Beverly. Amber seemed scared. She had blood on her face, arms, and shirt. She washed up at the apartment. Beverly's neighbors raised the alarm when she didn't get home from work. They knew something was wrong. They called her boss, who called the police. The police found blood on the pavement in the parking lot. What started as little droplets grew larger and larger until there were puddles of blood that led to a pack of cigarettes and a three-inch-long broken handle to a knife. It wasn't looking good. And I wonder why the police weren't there that evening to guard Beverly on her way to her truck. It was a day before the hearing when Amber would likely be very pissed. The trail of blood abruptly ended at, at a parking spot. And frighteningly, there were evidence of drag marks in the blood trail. DNA testing would prove that this was Beverly's blood. At 6 in the morning on November 21st, the morning after the murder, Amber appeared at her nephew's apartment. Her eyes were sunken, and she stunk real bad. It was, quote, as if she had rolled around in a sewer. Which she hadn't. But she had just murdered somebody and disposed of their body. Amber's car had a flat tire, and a female friend stopped by the apartment and drove Amber to Walmart to buy bleach. Amber said that the window was broken in her car, and it smelled like mildew, so the bleach would fix that. Personally, I'd focus on the flat tire over mildew, Oh, wait, she was probably cleaning up blood. <laughs> of course she was cleaning up blood. As it turned into evening, Amber got what was described as antsy and asked to be taken to the hospital, where the police tracked her down and arrested her. Once, I mean, it's so clear at this point who the main suspect should be. Once at the police station, Amber waived her Miranda rights, and after initially denying involvement in Beverly's disappearance, she cracked and quickly confessed to the murder and took the police to Beverly's body. The site was two to three blocks from Amber's brother's apartment. The ground was muddy and overgrown with brush. Amber had wanted to put Beverly in the river, but the terrain was too difficult to navigate and Amber left Beverly's body about 20 feet down the riverbank. The police gathered Amber's clothes from her nephew's house. The clothes had blood all over them, Beverly's blood. Amber's car was seized, and the wheel well was full of Beverly's blood as well. So I tend to think that she was alive when she went into that car. Unlike what Amber said where she thought she was dead, but Amber could just be mistaken. But I think she was alive by the volume of blood that was in the car, that her heart was still beating, and she was still actively bleeding. Beverly's autopsy revealed a brutal death as she was beaten and choked before she bled to death. Numerous abrasions on her face evidence of fighting back and including all the stab wounds. She had been stabbed in the neck. Her carotid artery was sliced and the knife had also hit bone in her spine. 
Beverly had a total of seven stab wounds, including some to her arms and hands, as she tried to fight off Amber's attack. Beverly would have been conscious for a few minutes after she suffered the fatal neck wound, and after losing consciousness, she would die within minutes. At some point in this attack, Beverly had been raped, but I can't tell if that was before or after she died. But the DNA results of the semen found from the vaginal swabs taken from Beverly are consistent with Amber McLaughlin's DNA. Amber couldn't be ruled out. When the police found her, Beverly wore only a bra and her dress, and they both were saturated with her blood. Her white dress had these beautiful, pretty little blue flowers all over it, and the floral dress was pulled up, revealing that Beverly was naked from below the waist. Her feet had been bound together. Amber claimed that she had taken off Beverly's clothes so that she would sink in the river. Honestly, I really don't understand this. Beverly wasn't wearing a damn parachute or an inflatable wrap. It was a damn dress. A dress that she was still wearing. A bit pulled up to expose her when her body was located. Only her underwear had been removed. And I think that it's more likely related to the forcible rape that Amber was convicted of and less likely to do with an attempt to sink her body. Honestly, underwear, it's not something that really keeps one afloat. Don't need to get that off of, we're going to put this body in the river. Yeah, lose the underwear or they'll find them right away. <sighs> Amber has always expressed remorse for the murder, and I think that's important to note. Even the investigating officers noted Amber's remorse and her genuine tears as she confessed. Three days after the murder, Amber called Beverly's employer and left a message saying that she was sorry for what she had done. The people that she really needed to apologize to were Beverly's family, her mother, her brother, the people that loved Beverly all her life. But Amber's show of remorse is important because of her intellectual disabilities and her fetal alcohol syndrome and other conditions in her life and just the terrible childhood she had of severe neglect and abuse made it very difficult for her to register emotions um, in the appropriate way. So her feeling of remorse, I think is actually very impressive because she would be a person would I would say would be more of a flat effect because she's numbed from what the world has done to her and her, her not understanding why it has happened. And now, despite the remorse that she expressed while she was awaiting trial, Amber actually called one of Beverly's neighbors and asked if she knew who was calling. And when she said she did, Amber said, you're next. Oh, so there's remorse. And then there's like, mm, getting up to it, you know, considering that Amber had confessed and led the police to Beverly's body. And at trial, she did not present any evidence during the uh, guilt phase of the trial, it is understandable that she was convicted of first-degree murder, forcible rape, and armed criminal action. During the penalty phase, now this is the part of the trial that will become interesting. Amber's prior convention, convictions were introduced, which included tampering, forgery, third-degree assault, felony non-support, sexual assault, and the pending burglary charge from breaking into Beverly's apartment and the protection uh, from abuse order that the victim Beverly had against Amber. Those were all introduced during the penalty phase, which is where we, you know, we decide what the punishment is going to be. In a bizarre misunderstanding of what mitigating evidence means, Amber's defense presented the testimony of the victim behind Amber's previous sexual assault conviction. 
The victim explained that she had a consensual relationship with the defendant, sexual, but that she had become pregnant by Amber when she was 14 and Amber was 19. Now, I just don't know how knocking up a 14-year-old when you're 19 is mitigating evidence, because it's not. Short was consensual, that's nice, but Amber should have been charged with statutory rape and not sexual assault. So in my opinion, her defense said, hey, that is sexual assault we you heard about? Well, guess what? It was actually worse. Ugh. Actual mitigating evidence of Amber's tough childhood was also presented, which included parental abandonment, family instability, and learning disabilities. A forensic psychologist testified that Amber had a choice in killing Beverly, but that Amber's bad childhood affected her ability to make that choice. The jury could not agree on Amber's punishment. They had found evidence of an aggravating factor, and they couldn't all agree that evidence of mitigation outweighed the aggra aggravating factor. Because the jury couldn't decide on punishment, the judge decided and sentenced Amber to death. Now, this is unusual. In most states, the jury has to all agree on a death sentence, but that's not the case in Missouri. If a jury finds that a defendant is death penalty el eligible due to aggravating factors, and if the jury can't decide on the sentence, a judge can decide in place of a jury. And in this case, a judge can issue a death sentence. While Amber was imprisoned, she transitioned to a female in 2018, and she is currently held in protective custody in a men's prison. If her execution goes forward, she will be the first transgender person executed in the United States. And I'm not saying don't execute her because she's transgender. I think that would be wrong. I think that would be... Uh, people all... If you're going to have a, a something like the death penalty, it has to be equally applied. And th that's most, we can't exclude people because of a minority status that they have. But I'm saying Amber shouldn't be executed because I don't think people should be executed. I don't like murder and I don't even like it when it's sanctioned by the government. Now, Amber's real last chance of not being executed and living to another day is that she has a clemency petition that is before the governor of Missouri that outlines Amber's tragic life that began with alcohol exposure while she was still in the womb. Bad shit started happening to Amber before she was even born, and she suffers from the effects of fetal alcohol syndrome, which includes, includes intellectual disabilities. Amber was consistently neglected, first by her birth parents, then by foster families. The abuse was severe. It went beyond neglect. As a punishment, food was withheld from Amber. Cabinets were not locked. Refrigerator was secured. And she was once even brutally punished for refusing to drown a litter of kittens. Yes, you just heard that. As a child, she was punished for not drowning kittens. One foster parent rubbed feces in Amber's face. The abuse was so severe that she wanted to return to her neglectful and abuseful mother that didn't even want her. Another caregiver would tase Amber and hit her with a nightstick. The abuse was frequent and unpredictable. And that's part of the tragedy of this. When you have abuse that you can see coming and you understand, if I do this, this will happen to me, you can change your behavior to fit that situation. And children can deal with that. It's abuse. And it's terrible, but you can deal with that slightly better. But when you never know what you do, 
what what action you do is going to cause some severe reaction from the people that are supposed to love you, then you can never adjust accordingly. You can never be at rest because you never know what's going to happen. The abuse was frequent and unrelenting. At other times, like I said, it was a taser or a nightstick. At other times, she was beaten with a belt and a broom handle. She still has scars on her hands from where adults burnt her with cigarettes. No one loved her, is my point. And it's not a bad, bad enough. It's, it's, no one loved her. That's, that's tragic. Because you can go through extreme poverty and uh, deprivation as a child. As long as you're loved, I think you're fine. But not only did people not love her, they tortured her. It's tragic. And I know this is going to be you follow true crime at all. Head injuries. Amber suffered multiple head injuries, especially as a child. She was hit by a car when she was riding her big wheel when she was just three. She fell out of a second story window as a child. Once she was slammed headfirst into a deep freezer so hard that her scalp was split open. And her biological dad, well, he slammed her head against the wall. Multiple doctors have diagnosed her with a brain injury. The cause can't be definitively determined. It could be due to her mother's alcohol abuse while pregnant, the multiple head injuries, or malnourishment. When I said food was withheld from her, that's how severe it was. That she may have brain damage from the adults who were supposed to take care of her starving her. Amber has a borderline intellectual disability. As a kid, she was repeatedly giving IQ tests, and she consistently tests in the 70s, maybe at the highest low 80s range. Along with trauma and neglect, Amber suffered from depression. Amber would begin to attempt suicide when she was just 18. As a child, because she had so many problems because of the severe abuse, abuse she was sustaining, she was constantly being assessed by different medical people, even though no one ever intervened and really helped her. She's never removed from these abusive situations. She's never put in a proper program that addresses her de de developmental disabilities, but they like to test her a lot and interview her. So you feel like you're doing something, but in the end of it, you're doing nothing. Anyway, as a child, she was assessed by a developmental pediatrician. When asked what she wanted to be when she grew up, Amber replied, dead. The doctor said that was one of the oddest responses that he'd ever heard. It's not it's the saddest response I've ever heard. Someone help this child. Now, let this be clear. I hate what Amber did in her terrible childhood. So terrible that it damaged her brain is no excuse for her crime. But it does stand as an explanation. When will society realize that we can't fix the world by executing people that the system failed as children? No one protected Amber when she was a child and she was allowed to be abused to the point where she was forever altered. She could never grow up to be a person that she could have been because her biological parents failed her, foster parents failed her, adoptive parents failed her, and when teachers tried to intervene and get the state to help her, nothing was done. The state failed her. Only now when she has committed a terrible crime is it that she can no longer be ignored. Sure, it's too late to give Amber the help that she desperately needed as a child, but that's no reason to kill her. Society failed her before. Failing her again by allowing her to be executed will not fix anything. 
It won't change the past. And it won't help the future. 